This is 105.9 The Region. There are so many ways of communicating these days, but nothing seems to beat the one-on-one. This is In Conversation with Ann Romer. Welcome to In Conversation. Thank you for being with us. This show is, in my view, upfront, up close, and uplifting. Let's get right to it. Kathleen Wynne announced last month that she would be leaving politics at the end of her term in 2022. Wynne made history when she became Ontario's first female premier and Canada's first openly gay premier governing this province from 2013 until 2018. She has known stunning victories and crushing defeats. Many were actually surprised that she stayed on at Queen's Park after a massive loss to Doug Ford in the last election. She remains steadfast as the MPP for Don Valley West and is as vocal as ever in the legislature. Kathleen Wynne joins us now in conversation. Thank you for being with us. My pleasure, Anne. Thanks for asking me. First straightforward question, why are you leaving? It's time. I, uh, by the time the next election comes around in 2022, I will have been in elected office for 22 years because I was elected as a school trustee in 2000. Um, and I, I really feel strongly it's time for the next generation. And my role now is to encourage young people to get involved and be that next generation. So some would also ask, and I will, why did you stay on after the, uh, the election where things didn't turn out quite as you had hoped? That's, that's the understatement. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I felt very responsible to my constituents, Anne. Uh, I was elected once again in 2018 in a wave that brought in the Conservatives, but uh, nonetheless, the, the people of John Valley West stood behind me, and I felt strongly that I wanted to continue to represent them, and that's why I've stayed. You have had... Uh really quite an amazing career as a politician. You mentioned school trustee, uh, and then you went on to become an MPP. I'm really taken by the various roles that you had, Minister of Education, Minister of Transportation, Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, Aboriginal Affairs, Agriculture and Food. That one I did not know. <laughs> so what what did you learn about politics and about the people of Ontario with these uh, various uh, portfolios? Well, I learned a lot, and the you know the Ministry of Agriculture and Food. I actually appointed myself to that one in the first year that I was Premier, and because I wanted to send a really clear message to rural Ontario that that I was concerned about um, the the issues of agriculture in small town Ontario. Um, but those other the other ministries, education and so on. Um, what I learned about the people of Ontario is that there's more that unites us than divides us that, uh, you know, we are all raising families or looking after loved ones, and we, we have many of the same concerns, but that there are, that there are regional differences and that we have to, as, um, as politicians, we have to take those regional differences into account. It takes longer to get to school if you have to ride a bus from Sioux Narrows to Kenora than it does in downtown Toronto. Um, you know, the bear hunt means something different in North Bay than it means in uh, Windsor. So, so those, those differences are extremely important. And the fact that Dalton McGinty gave me the opportunity to serve in all of those ministries meant that by the time he stepped down in 2012, 
I felt very confident that I could learn what I needed to learn in order to take on the role of Premier because I had seen government and I'd seen the province from a, a number of different perspectives. I'm going to go back in time, and I was there. I watched all of this unfold. The convention, I believe it was at the Madame Centre in 2013, the leadership convention. I watched as each, you know, each ballot would, would put you in a certain position and Sandra Pupatello in another position. But I also watched you, Kathleen Wynne, conferring with a very well-known politician, Hazel McCallion. What does she mean to you in your life? Hazel was, uh, she was a, a bit of a, um, a mentor later on in my career. You know, she, uh, she always had, she always had a, a strong word and um, an opinion to offer. The main, the main um, aspect of her career that I drew on was her ability to, um, to cut through the nonsense when we were talking about municipal issues, you know, to really understand um, what it meant to listen to municipal politicians. And, you know, she... She emboldened me in terms of being an older woman. Now, I'm not as old as Hazel, but but I was in my 60s, you know. And she she encouraged me to be strong and to uh, to tackle what was in front of me. We did not always agree. We do not always agree. And she was she was pretty mad at me in the last election um, because she felt that she felt that we should have we should have had more fiscal restraint in our last budget. We just disagreed on that, you know, because I felt there were things we needed to invest in. But it didn't matter if we disagreed. We could have a, a good conversation, and she felt very strongly about women in politics. So uh, so I've appreciated Hazel over the years. So you became the leader. You, you were victorious. Did you need the strength that Hazel McCallion encouraged you to find in order to emerge from the shadow of Dalton McGinty? Um. It, you know, it was a challenge to take on the party uh, at that particular moment. We were in a minority government, and uh, everyone expected that we would not be able to get a second budget passed. We had gotten a budget passed in 2011 um, and uh, 2012, and, and no one thought we were going to be able to get another budget passed in 2013. So I had to very quickly work with the other parties in the legislature. Um, it turned out that we worked with Andrea Horvath and the NDP, and that allowed us to get a budget passed in uh, 2013 and to, to hold on to government for one more year. And then in 2014, um, we went into an election. But, but those first few months, um, were very challenging. You, you might remember we were dealing with the issues around uh, closed gas plants, and we were taking, you know, we were taking a real beating in the legislature every single day, and that's what I was walking into. Um, and I knew, I knew all that, and I had been there. Uh, I believed in what we had been doing, and so I, I was up to it. But but it was it was a challenging time for sure. You went ahead. You had to go through a lot. An OPP investigation, the Auditor General's report. You testified before the Justice Committee. You even apologized and vowed that this would never happen again. What you put forward was some legislation called the Public Sector and MPP Accountability and Transparency Act. Where did that come from in you, Kathleen? Well, you know, what I, what I wanted to do was I wanted to demonstrate that we had learned from mistakes that had been made. 
and that that we would um, we would act on my commitment that things that had happened before wouldn't happen again because some of some of what had happened was people were not following the rules around um, the the communication the technology and I wanted to make sure that there would be training in place that that people would know all the rules and that there would be no excuse for uh, for not following them and to put to put those um, to put those expectations into legislation meant that I was able to I was able to move forward with some confidence that my staff and all the people around me, not all of whom I would see every day, of course, that they would know that my expectation was and that the expectation of leaders going forward would be that there would be more accountability on the part of staff and leaders. Let's fast forward, and I, I'm sure you don't want to, and I'm not sure I want to drag you through this again, but let's, uh, 2018, uh, uh, shocking defeat. Kathleen, what went wrong? Well, I think part of it, Part of it was that we'd been in office for 15 years. I think that was at, that was at the root of the, the challenge. Um, I think that there was, uh, obviously, there was antipathy towards me. Um, the reason that I conceded a week before the actual election day was that I was hearing from candidates that there were, there were people coming to the door saying, you know, I really like you, but I, I can't vote for Kathleen. And... I don't think we'll ever know exactly what was at the root of that, Anne. I mean, there was some misogyny. There was some homophobia, for sure. We know that. But that's not the whole story. I think people were, I think people were really angry about electricity prices, um, sometimes with good cause and sometimes not. You know, I think there were, there were people who really were suffering in the province from high electricity prices. We addressed that, and we, we lowered those prices by taking the cost, absorbing the cost into the, the, um, the provincial treasury. But I think that there was an accumulation of things. I think that the partial sell-off of Hydro One had made people mad, and, um, and they, they conflated that with higher electricity prices, even though the two things were not related. They, they conflated those, and the, the NDP and the Conservatives were actually successful in, in planting that in people's minds. Um, so I think it was a, it was a bunch of things starting with 15 years, and nobody had expected us to win the 2014 election, let alone the 2018 election, and I think we just, we had outstayed our welcome at, uh, uh, in the halls of government. From one human being to another, Kathleen, did that hurt? Absolutely. It hurt enormously. I mean, it was, it hurt, it hurt because of all the people that I felt I had let down. You know, on election night, um, you have to put on a brave face. Um, I had had a really hard week the week before when I had conceded. And on my mind that night, on election night, was every single campaign office around the province where liberals were just feeling so desolate, you know. And, uh, and you, carry that, you carry that with you. Um, the other thing that really pained me was that I knew that the the new government was coming in with very little platform, and um, and with a with an agenda that was just about undoing the things that we had done for no good reason. And I, you know, I will say that um, in, not in a particularly partisan way, but just that was that was the reality because I had listened to the rhetoric, and indeed, 
um, we watched that happen, you know. Um, rolling back the basic income pilot, um, proposing to make class sizes bigger when it wasn't necessary in terms of fiscal reform, um, not continuing with writing of indigenous curriculum in the, in the school system. You know, there's a whole long list of things. Upending the autism program that they later had to reinstate and really go back to what we had been doing. So I was very worried about all of those things and unfortunately, a lot of them, um, a lot of them panned out exactly the way I expected. So yeah, it was a really painful process. In 2022, you will be starting a new chapter in your life. Your political career, it really is quite remarkable and challenging. It will be in the rearview mirror. What will you be looking at in terms of your life through the windshield of your life? Well, you know, I I hope that what I'll be able to do, and I, I feel like I'm starting a little bit now, but I, I hope that what I'll be able to do is to use that accumulated experience to talk to younger people about political realities, about the issues that are important to all of us, um, to encourage young people. And I'm already being asked to speak with students, um, you know, a couple of times a week to, to talk to them about how we made decisions, what it's like to be in political life. And one of the messages that I, I want to find a way to deliver consistently is that whatever Whatever the challenges are, whatever the negativity that you might experience, and it is more negative because of social media now, but all of that does not negate the impact that you can have. It is worth it. You know, it is worth it to get involved, even if you're not a candidate, even if you are working to support other people, even if you're not part of a political party, you know, at, at the municipal level, it is worth getting involved because those decisions that are made in legislatures and in council rooms and in school board uh, rooms are important. They change people's lives and they can either change people's lives for the better or for the worse. And so it is very important that, uh, that young people think about how they can get involved if that's what they're interested in doing. And sometimes they just need some encouragement from someone who's been there. Kathleen Wynn, thank you, thank you for joining us in conversation. Thanks so much, Anne. All the best. And you as well. Coming up, former federal leader and now author Ronna Ambrose joins me for the International Day of the Girl. This is In Conversation with Anne Romer. Is there someone you want to learn more about? Drop us a line. Info at 1059theregion.com. Anne Romer will be right back on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to In Conversation with Anne Romer on 1059 The Region. Ronna Ambrose stepped away from the political spotlight in 2017 after an outstanding career as an MP and interim leader of the Conservative Party, also leader of Canada's official opposition in the House of Commons. But she has not left center stage when it comes to changing how women and girls are treated around the globe, tirelessly championing their rights and freedoms. Case in point, her new book, The International Day of the Girl, Celebrating Girls Around the World. Ronna Ambrose joins us now in conversation. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Anne. So, Ronna, why did you write the book? I wrote the book because I think we need practical tools to teach our children about gender equality. We talk a lot about it as adults, 
um, in the business world, in our homes, but actually we need to talk to kids about it because if we teach kids the importance of equality uh, at a very young age, they're more likely to grow up with less bias in their life, um, taking, you know, putting themselves in other people's shoes, thinking about what discrimination looks like and feels like, uh, and I think that leads to a more equal world. You focus on young girls from all parts of the globe, including right here in Canada. Tell us about how you chose the countries and how you found the young girls to speak with and to talk about. Sure. So we chose nine girls and and nine issues. Some of them are, you know, everything from uh, access to education, access to healthy food, um, early childhood marriage, uh, and, and these are real issues that girls deal with around the globe. And so it's important for Canadian kids to understand that these are real challenges that affect hundreds of millions of girls outside of Canada. Uh, and we can help. We can be global citizens and support important organizations that are helping girls. And if I brought it back home, when I thought about, well, what about in Canada? Then for me, it was about Indigenous girls. And we chose the story of Sokanen, who is actually a true life story of Shannon Kustigan, who was uh, a little girl from Attawapiskat, the First Nation in Ontario, who fought very hard to get a new school built uh, in her in her community. I want to go back in time and find out the genesis of, of this passion that you have and this determination to change the world for young girls and for women around the world and here in Canada. You began early uh, with a Bachelor of Arts in Women's and Gender Studies. You have a master's degree in political science, and that explains your your joy when it comes to a political career. But you also spent time helping various organizations and groups, the Sexual Assault and Sexual Abuse Crisis Center, for instance, a women's shelter, the Status of Women Action Group. What drew you to this? Well, I think growing up, it was, you know, I just was always aware of the fact that there was an inequality uh, and that, you know, when you think of uh, domestic abuse, you think of sexual assault, you think of even homicide. I mean, these are all areas that, that, that affect women more so. And I think when I was a little girl, I lived with my parents overseas for a number of years growing up in different countries. They were all third world countries. And I was very lucky to, you know, ha- you know have um, a, a nice home and, 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 and be able to go to school. But what I saw around me was many, many girls that didn't have those things. And when you think about outside of Canada, there are hundreds of millions of girls that don't have access to even basic school supplies or being able to go to school. So that's always stayed with me in my whole life. And I feel like as a Canadian, we, we have a framework in this country, a strong framework for equality in terms of our legal rights. But we have to also look at how, how, that, you know, how that actually exists within our society and within our culture. And also, what can we do as Canadians to help other girls and women around the world who, who don't have the same kinds of legal protections that we do? You know, the word equality comes to mind. And within that is the word quality. Uh, and one thinks about that. What was your experience like, let's say, in politics, in federal politics? Was there any pushback as you moved your way through the ranks as cabinet minister with so many portfolios, eventually the federal conservative party leader and leader of the opposition? Any pushback? Of course. Uh, look, it's, it's any woman that's been in politics will tell you that it's not, it's not 
you know, a, a seamless path. There's no doubt about it. There's a lot of sexism that comes from many different corners um, that you go through, particularly in social media. Um, you know, I remember being out door knocking and having someone tell me right to my face that they wouldn't vote for me because I was a woman. And you just think in this day and age, how could that still happen? But there are still people that just don't believe that girls or women should be, should be or can be leaders in our society. And you think about some of the girls that are in the story, in your book, and some of the things that they have to face. And there are examples of what young girls are facing around the world. For instance, forced marriages and uh, the the kind of restrictions that will not allow them to advance in life, like a lack of education, even something as basic as a lack of food. Exactly. And, and so we are thankful for what we have in Canada, but I, I you know, I made sure that there was a, uh, we wanted to make sure that there was uh, an Indigenous girl represented in this book, because the other thing, the message also is, is that we are not perfect. We have a lot of issues right here in Canada, but particularly in our Indigenous community with our Indigenous girls and women. If we think of violence, for instance, an Indigenous girl is five times more likely to experience violence in her life than a non-Indigenous person in Canada. So that's a pretty jarring statistic. So we've got work to do right here at home, but it's also a book that, that exposes children to the fact that there's lots of other people around this world that may not have the same rights and privileges we do, and we can help. We can be a part of, a, of, of organizations, of NGOs, of lots of different ways that we can help uh, make a change around the world. And doesn't it start young? You know, educating uh, our children to the fact that there is equality and that women, girls, are just as important as men, boys. It, it has to start at a very, very young age, and it has to be presented in a way that is understandable to a young person and will be absorbed and and li- lived for the rest of his or her life. That's exactly right. I mean, when we talk about unconscious bias and how that affects so much um, that happens in our in our world in Canada, when we think about inequality and how women are treated in the corporate world and how girls are treated, you know, in math class and all of those things, it all comes from unconscious bias. And that starts when we're little kids. And so if we, that was the whole point of the book, it's just a practical way to sit down and have conversations in an uplifting way in an educational way to talk about equality with kids. And, and so that it's not so esoteric, so theoretical, so philosophical. It's just stories. It's a storybook about girls and how they overcame their challenges, what discrimination looks like. Um, you know, it's very clear. And how boys also help. And so in one of the stories, the brother makes a change to help his sister. You led the global movement for the creation of an International Day of the Girl. Why did you do that? You know, I, I always joke that I didn't have a choice because I was out at the United Nations in New York City and this group of amazing girls came up to me and said, you need to help us. And they asked me to basically be their champion. And they needed someone who had authority and power in, in a government um, to help put a resolution forward. I mean, girls can't just all of a sudden put a resolution for it at the UN. They needed someone like me to help them. And so, to be honest, I didn't think... I was told it wasn't possible um, by the people in our government. And we just said, let's get on it. So we worked hard and we collected allies all over the world. I remember having to call the White House um, to talk to someone in Obama's office to help us. I mean, I can't even, it just, it was really a, a team effort. Um, and so we got it done. But these girls are really who, who, who made it happen. They used their voice. 
And what is the purpose of the International Day of the Girl? It's every October 11th, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. It's every October 11th. And it's a day where we can actually, it's a day dedicated to promoting gender equality and championing the rights of girls and achievements everywhere in the world. So what I love about it is we have International Women's Day and we all celebrate it and do great things that day. But girls are always a bit left out of that because a lot of those topics are kind of over their head. This is a day where we can talk about things that just affect girls, even things like um, bullying online, uh, the kinds of things that they're dealing with at a school age. Um, they, they talk about, you know, issues like early childhood marriage. I mean, many things, lack of access to technology so that they can have, you know, a better classroom environment. Um, so there's many different things that girls experience. So if we can talk about those things at a really young age in a way that we can, we, um, we can educate them on their rights um, and what that does is as they grow up, they're more willing to use their voice and understand that they have rights. Now, we can't wait till people are in university to talk about this. We've got to talk about it to little kids so they grow up with that confidence, knowing that they do have rights. Why did you leave politics in 2017? It was a, a spot where you would be able to have a voice that would be heard loud and clear from coast to coast to coast. Why did you leave, and do you think that you still have the means and way to get your message across? I think I'm lucky to be able to still use my voice. Um, and to continue these issues, to continue to speak about these issues that matter a great deal to me, but matter more to girls and women out there that that want to hear these things amplified. I left politics because I had been there for 13 years, and if I stayed, I would have then run to be prime minister, and that would be another probably decade commitment. Um, and, and that was the next step, and I had to make a choice: do I want to to go for it and, and potentially stay for another decade? Uh, and I just wasn't prepared to do that at that time in my life because, frankly, I was just exhausted after 13 years. And I needed to to take a break, try a new challenge. And so I went, I've, I'm in, I've gone into the private sector, and it is a new challenge for me, and I am enjoying it. And I'm back to that moment where I feel a little intimidated and learning a lot and really pushing myself to, to you know, to, to try new things. And, and so I think that's a, a positive thing for me. And new things like co-writing a book. Now, I'm, I've got the book in front of me, and I read it, and I, I really I was very moved by it, and I learned a lot, and it, oh, it slowed me down and made me stop and think about other people in the world, which I think is so important. There's a section in the book, page 27, and the headline is, You Are the World's Gardener. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, this was really, this was a big part of, Jessica was a big part of this. We were trying to think of how do we make the case to children to, to really show inequality. So her idea was to pick a garden where one side of the garden is taken care of and fertilized and loved and weeded, and then the other side of the garden is not. It's neglected. And it was a visual to try and teach children, look what happens when you ignore one side of the garden. And then we said, you know, that's how girls are treated. They don't get the extra water and the fertilizer and 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 so they don't bloom and they don't reach their potential. So and then you know full circle after you read the book is you're the world gardener. So you can make a difference in making sure that the whole garden blooms. The International Day of the Girls celebrating girls around the world. A portion of the book's proceeds will go to Plan International Canada. Rona Ambrose, thank you so much for spending time with us in conversation. 
Oh, thank you, Anne, and thank you. I'm so glad you enjoyed the book, and I, I hope people get a chance to look at it. I hope, I hope people buy it for a girl or boy in their life. Um, it's really all about um, educating our children at a young age about equality in a way that is um, uplifting and positive. Such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, Ronna Ambrose. Thank you, Anne. It's lovely to speak to you as well. Kathleen Wynn, about to start a new chapter in her life away from politics. Ronna Ambrose, chapter and verse, trying to make the world a better place for girls and young women everywhere. I'm turning the page on this edition of In Conversation, ready to write and roll next week. Bye for now. Follow In Conversation with Ann Romer on Twitter at 1059 The Region. This is 1059 The Region.